Well, good morning again. I do want to say that tonight's dinner party actually did fill up. So please, if you would like to do a dinner party with the pastors and you're newer to the church, there is a sign-up at the Info Center for the September 19th one. So go ahead and take advantage of that. That's already over half full, so make sure that you do that uh, if you would like to. Well, last week when we left off with Joseph, things weren't so great. Joseph had been tempted by Potiphar's wife, and even though he had overcome this great temptation, he was wrongly accused and wrongly condemned and thrown into prison for a crime that he did not commit. But the end of chapter 9, we see a continuous theme throughout the life of Joseph, and it's this, the Lord was with Joseph. I love that short phrase. It gives me such encouragement in every season of my life. The Lord is with us. And if, and if someone was writing a story about your life from the same perspective that the author here wrote about Joseph's life, in every season of your life, I believe that they would be able to include the phrase, the Lord was with, and then fill in your name. And because the Lord was with Joseph, he succeeded. He was a tremendously successful leader. And everywhere he went, his leadership gifts were recognized. And so even though he was in prison, he, went, he climbed the ladder within prison, and he became a leader within prison responsible for other prisoners. And we're going to pick up the story here in Genesis chapter 40, beginning in verse 1, reading to you from the NLT. It says that sometime later, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and chief baker offended their royal master. Offended means that they sinned against. They did something wrong against Pharaoh. Pharaoh became angry with these two officials, and he put them in the prison where Joseph was, in the palace of the captain of the guard. Now, the captain of the guard actually may have been uh, Potiphar. So some people believe that Joseph was imprisoned, like in the dungeon or in the basement of Potiphar's house, and that's where these two men came also. They remained in prison for quite some time, We don't know how long, but they're in prison for a while here. And the captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, who looked after them. While they were in prison, Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker each had a dream one night, and each dream had its own meaning. When Joseph saw them the next morning, he noticed that they both looked upset. Why do you look so worried today, he asked them. And they replied, we both had dreams last night, but no one can tell us what they mean. Interpreting dreams is God's business, Joseph replied. Go ahead. And tell me your dreams. Last week and this week, we've seen different types of pain in Joseph's life. I wrote down some things that we've seen. The pain of doing the right thing, but getting the wrong outcome. The pain of being wrongly accused and wrongly punished. The pain of losing freedom. The pain of being punished. The pain of being hated. The pain of being misunderstood. Now in this chapter, he's the pain of being lumped in with a group of people who you are not like. He shouldn't be in prison with other criminals. The pain of discomfort. The prison in Egypt, I'm sure, was nothing like the prisons of America. And we're going to see in this chapter the pain of being overlooked and forgotten. A pain is something that I think we're all familiar with. And I was thinking about what's the worst pain I've ever seen with my own eyes. And I think of two specific situations. One was when my wife Erin was giving birth to our daughters, especially our oldest daughter, Lilia. I had not quite seen that sort of pain and anguish before. And the other one actually is many years ago when my dad had kidney stones. And I remember seeing him uh, in the most unbelievable, unimaginable pain. And some people say that kidney stone pain is the equivalent to the pain of giving birth. I don't say that because I want to remain married. But, <laughs> but some, people, some people say that and believe that to be true. But I don't know what is the worst pain you've ever seen with your 
own eyes. But both of those pains were primarily physical pain. Isn't it true in life, physical pain is terrible, but sometimes emotional pain is worse. Mental pain, psychological pain. And all of us deal with pain. Sometimes pain is acute, which means it's felt and it's obvious. Sometimes pain is chronic, which means it's just kind of uh, always with us. Sometimes pain is obvious and the source of the pain. If you stub your toe, you know where the pain is coming from. But sometimes you have uh, these mysterious pains in the morning that you wake up and you're like, what is that new pain? Where did that come from? What do we do with our pain? And Joseph here is dealing with pain. This past Friday, we were reading together as a church in our uh, version. read together from Mark chapter 15, the death of Jesus Christ. And Georgia Miglarisi, one of our church members, was just sharing her thoughts um, in the comment section. And she asked this question. I want to make sure I quote her correctly here. Can pain bring forth anything good? And she knew the answer, but she still was asking the question. When you read the story of Jesus' suffering, certainly there's this question of what good can come out of our pain. And this morning from this story in Genesis 40, we're going to learn three things that we we must remember to do in our pain. Maybe you're here this morning and you're in pain. And these are three things that I want to remind you from the story of Joseph, three things we must do in our pain. And the first thing is this, in your pain, we must remember to see others. Joseph noticed something was up. He's responsible for the cupbearer, and he's responsible for the baker. And right in the text, it says that Joseph looked at them, and he noticed something was wrong. Their, their face was downcast. There was something about them that Joseph realized they're not okay. And sometimes the first key to helping people in their pain is just being willing to notice. Just being willing to notice. And then Joseph, instead of noticing, going, if I ask how they're doing, they're probably going to tell me. So, <laughs> you ever been there? So I'm just not going to ask. Instead, he, he makes the ask. He says, what's going on? Are you guys okay? And he sees the pain of the cupbearer, and he sees the pain of the baker. And it's remarkable because Joseph would have been justified in saying, listen, if these guys are miserable, then they deserve it. I mean, I'm here. I'm innocent. They did something wrong. They deserve to be here, so they probably should be miserable. He could have said that to him. He also could have been so focused on his own pain and his own story, the story of injustice, the story of betrayal, this story of what his brothers did to him and what Potiphar's wife accused him of and what Potiphar believed, this hopelessness now that he's in prison with no chance of getting out. It's not like there's a parole system where someday maybe he'll get out. He could have been so consumed with his own story that he would never have the energy, the strength, the margin, the empathy to care about someone else's pain or someone else's story. And the truth is, is that pain sometimes has the power of doing this to us. See, all of us sort of intuitively through human nature make life about ourselves. Every time a new story breaks, every time we hear about something happening in someone else's life, almost always the first way we filter that news is through the lens of how will it affect me, right? When we're looking at the weather forecast, we look at through the lens of what is my schedule this week and how will this thunderstorm potentially interfere with my plans. We're all naturally that way. But pain has a way of actually exacerbating that tendency. Pain has a way of causing us to be so inward focused in such a position of navel gazing and sort of so consumed with what we're feeling that we become completely unable to see the pain in the world around us and the pain in other people around us, and it robs us of the opportunity to serve others. Now, I want to give a really important caveat here. I'm not talking about self-care. Self-care is important, right? Taking care of yourself and making sure that you're doing okay, that's necessary. 
One of the wisest things I've ever heard from another pastor, one of my friends who's a pastor in Rochester said, he reminded me one time, he said, David, self-care is not selfish. (laughs) You got to say that to yourself over and over and over. Self-care is not selfish. In fact, if you will not care for yourself, in a way that's actually selfish because you're going to end up hurting other people in the long run. So I'm not saying that in seasons of pain we don't need sometimes to pause. We don't have different seasons of life where we have more capacity to give than others. I recognize all of that because I've been in those seasons. I get it, right? Self-care is not selfish. But self-care is not self-absorption. Self-care is not selfishness to the point where I can't see your needs. I don't care about you. I'm too busy caring about what I'm feeling. Self-care is important, but in our pain, we must remember to see others. One of our friends who has been in this church in the past, Pam Reese, many of you remember Pam and her son Jordan are going through a tremendous season of pain right now. Last Saturday, Jordan, who was 15 years old, suddenly passed away. And if you remember Jordan's life, she was born in this church. She was a miraculous birth, not expected to survive, born very early and with a severe heart condition. And there are long-term concerns about her heart. By God's grace, he had sustained her to the point where cardiologists had cleared her to play sports, and she played three sports, and she was wonderful at them, and she just got a scholarship to a prep school to play sports, and then this past Saturday, unexpectedly, she had a major cardiac event, and she's with Jesus now. What do we do in these seasons? And Tuesday, I'll drive three hours north to where they live to be there for that service and to speak. As I've been considering this this week and, and, and the timing of this news and the timing of this message, it brought me back to uh, uh, something that happened in our church in 2008, 13 years ago, when another teenage girl lost her life, Samantha Reynolds. Many of you, well, not many of you, but some of you were here, and you remember this 14-year-old girl killed by a drunk driver, and we did her funeral right here in this service, or in this room. And in, in preparing for what I want to share on Tuesday, I went back to what I shared 13 years ago. And I found that I shared from Matthew 14. I want to read to you these three verses. It says that this is John the Baptist's death. Jesus' cousin, the one who went before Jesus, the one who prepared the way for Jesus. Verse 12. His disciples came and took away John the Baptist's body and buried it. And they went and reported it to Jesus. And now when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a lonely place by himself. And in the Greek, this, this imagery that he withdrew from there in a boat to a lonely place by himself, the commentators say that this lonely place doesn't necessarily describe the location as much as it describes where Jesus was at emotionally, that there was a loneliness that he was experiencing in that place. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd. Now here's Jesus. He wants to be alone in his pain. He wants to rightly grieve the loss of his dear relative, probably his cousin. But the large crowd follows him, and then look what his response is. And he felt compassion for them. And he healed their sick. Even in his pain, he could feel the pain of others. And then I said these words in the message that day. Jesus wants to grieve alone, and the crowds find him. They followed him. And here we take our clue from Christ on how to continue our journey of grief. Jesus could have ran off. He could have been angry at the crowd for their insensitivity. He would have been justified in making excuses about how he wasn't ready to be strong for others. He needed someone to be strong for him. And those are all fair things to feel and say. We've all had the feeling this week that we just wish the world would stop moving for a while so we can just deal. 
But the world around us continues on, and the needs around us continue to find us, and life finds seemingly unfair ways of pushing us on. The question is not, will this happen, but what will happen inside of me when it does? We see that Jesus is filled with compassion. This means he felt love toward the people in his life, a love that moved him to action. We see here that grief can lead us to love, to love better, to love truer, to love more. Grief can become a dangerous path because if it doesn't lead us to love and feel and care, it can lead us to hate and callousness and bitterness. Anger is certainly a natural part of grief, but if it is allowed to grow into bitterness, it can destroy us. Simply put, tragedy arises from tragedy when we grow bitter in our grief. God helps us in our pain with the promise that he can use our pain to help others. That even the ways in which we suffer and struggle, and we all do, that out of that, God will build a platform for ministry, will open doors for us to speak into people's lives. And even in our pain, we need to not run from others, but we need to move toward others. And so in our pain, remember to see others. Joseph does that here. Secondly, in your pain, we have to remember to use our gifts, to use our gifts. So what happens next is Joseph says, tell me your dreams. He says, the, he says, the interpretation belongs to God, which by the way, was not what the Egyptians believed. The Egyptians had professional dream interpreters that you would take your dreams to. This morning on the way to church, my oldest daughter said, I had a weird dream last night. And I said, well, tell me about it because we're talking about dreams in church this morning. She said, we were all on vacation together and we all wanted ramens. I said, that doesn't sound weird. That sounds like every day in our house. But she's like, so, but we didn't have ramen. So you went out and you bought ramens and you came back and we made ramens and we were all sitting on the roof of the house eating ramens together. And my ramen bowl fell off the roof and I jumped after it to save my ramen bowl. (laughs) And I woke up with that falling feeling and I sat right up in bed. And I was thinking, I don't know if that's from the Lord, (laughs) but maybe you like ramens a little too much. Every now and then, the Lord still does speak through dreams. We believe that. Most of the time, our dreams are our subconscious just being active, but sometimes he does. And here he is, and the cup bearer, uh, the wine taster, basically, for Pharaoh, has this dream about these three vineyards, or these, not these three vineyards, these three branches that begin to bud and blossom and grapes begin to grow, and he crushes them into a cup and he hands the cup to Pharaoh. And, 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 and Joseph says, well, here's what it means. Those three branches represent three days, and within three days, Pharaoh is gonna lift you up and restore you to the position that you used to have. Good news. And then Joseph makes a request. And when he does this, please remember me and do me a favor. Get me out of here. And so the chief baker sees that and he's like, whoa, Joseph's handing out good interpretations. I'll bring him my interpretation or my dream. And so the baker comes and says, I had a dream too. And there were three baskets of white pastries stacked on my head. And the birds came and they ate the pastries out of the baskets uh, on top of my head. And Joseph said, here's what your dream means. The three baskets also represent three days. Three days from now, Pharaoh will lift you up and and impale your body on a pole. Then birds will come and peck away at your flesh. Not as good of a dream interpretation. And three days later is Pharaoh's birthday, and for whatever reason, well, we know why, the sovereignty of God, Pharaoh does exactly what Joseph says the dreams meant. The cupbearer is restored to his job, and the baker is impaled and killed for his crime against Pharaoh. When I think about Joseph in prison here, 
there's no indicator up until this point that Joseph is a dream interpreter. He's a dreamer, right? But there's no indicator that he interprets dreams. Because remember, he brought his dreams to his father and his brothers, and they sort of interpreted it. They said, do you think that we're going to bow down to you? Now, maybe Joseph had an idea of what the dream meant, but, there's no, but here he is in prison, arguably in the lowest point of his life, and he's developing and using the very gift that God has placed within him that we know him most for now, Joseph, the dream interpreter. It's remarkable that even in his pain, he knows this gift that God has given me, I'm responsible to steward and I'm responsible to use. And pain in our life is no excuse to put our gifts off to the side. God has given us gifts to use. It could be simply the gift of hospitality. It could be the gift of encouragement. It could be an artistic gift. It could be a musical gift. It, it, it could be an athletic gift. It could be a practical gift. It could be a spiritual gift. It could be all of these different things. It could be the gift of teaching, the gift of leadership, the gift of administration. Paul gives us these long lists of different gifts, and every single one of you in this room has a gift. And one of the things that pain sometimes robs us of is the willingness to use our gift. And sometimes the pain is related to when we last tried to use our gift, and it wasn't well received. We're going to see next week that Joseph uses the same gift of dream interpretation, and it escalates him to second in command. Pretty cool, right? But this week, he uses the gift, and what does it do? Not a thing. He's forgotten. It seems to do nothing. And what does this mean? Listen, some of you, this will be helpful. When you use your gifts, whatever they are, you're not responsible for how your gift is appreciated or received. You're not responsible. It doesn't mean you can use your gift recklessly or in a mean spirit. What I mean is, when you use your gift in a way that honors God, you're not responsible for how it's received or how it's appreciated or whether it's liked or not or whether, whether the church recognizes it or not. It gives you a platform to use your gift on. You're not responsible for that. You're responsible to be faithful with and steward the gift that God has given you. You're also not responsible for the impact of the gift. Paul says in Corinthians, some water, some plant, but only God can cause the growth. Only God, the gift giver, can actually make the gift come alive in its impact in the lives of other people. So we're not responsible for whether or not people like our gift. We're not responsible for whether or not our gift makes the impact we hoped it would make. But we are responsible to steward the gift that God has given us. And we all need to make sure that in our seasons of life, we're not making excuses surrounding the pain that keeps us from using our gifts. Don't let pain rob you and others of your gift. And by the way, when I'm speaking of pain, I'm not just talking about the pain of loss and grief, those sort of pains. I'm talking about just sometimes the pain of hard work, of developing a gift. The pain of putting in the hours. The pain of practice. <laughs> the pain of the inconvenience of using your gift in times where maybe you would choose not to use your gift. We have to be careful that we don't make excuses and say, well, God understands, I, you know, I'm this, that, and the other. God has given you a gift for a specific reason. Yes, there are some seasons where maybe you will use it in different ways than others. I totally get that. But generally speaking, if God's given you a gift, there's a way you should be using it today, right now, not waiting for tomorrow. And even in his pain, Joseph uses his gift. The last thing I want us to see from the story this morning is this. In your pain, we have to remember the one who remembers you. So let's keep reading here, verse 20, the end of the story. Pharaoh's birthday came three days later, 
and he prepared a banquet for all his officials and staff. He summoned his chief cupbearer and chief baker to join the other officials. He then restored the chief cupbearer to his former position so he could again hand Pharaoh his cup. Man, we just did a series on Nehemiah just before this, and that's what Nehemiah was. Nehemiah was a cupbearer in the Persian Empire. This was a very high-ranking official status, close access to the king. You were the one who tasted the wine before he did. That was your entire job was to make sure that it wasn't poisonous. He's restored. Verse 22, but Pharaoh impaled the chief baker just as Joseph had predicted when he interpreted his dream. And then look at this final verse, Genesis 40. Pharaoh's chief cupbearer, however, forgot all about Joseph, never giving him another thought. It's like every chapter ends like this in Joseph's life. Joseph's sold into slavery. Joseph's thrown into prison. Joseph, the forgotten prisoner. How much time passed? Well, we don't actually know how long Joseph was in prison. There are two indicators that time had passed in this chapter. At the very beginning, it said sometime later. And then later in our reading, it said sometime later. So years have probably passed. We do know this. From when the cupbearer was lifted out of jail, prison, and restored to his job, to when, we'll see next week, when he finally remembers Joseph, it's two years. Now, you and I, when we read this story, we have the luxury of just going to the next chapter and saying, yeah, it's not that bad. Look how quickly they remembered Joseph. Two years he's forgotten. Think about two years of your life, 730 days sitting there, rotting away in that prison, haunted by your dreams and your memories, the increasing feelings of hopelessness, day after day building within Joseph. I'll never be remembered. Surely he's forgotten me. Two years, Joseph is there forgotten. Joseph thought he had figured out how to be noticed and rescued. Interpret this guy's dream and tell him, don't forget me. But God had a different plan. And we'll read about it next week. We'll see God's plan and God's perfect timing. But Joseph lives two years feeling forgotten. I'm going to ask the band to come forward. You know, all of us in certain seasons of life, we may feel like we've been forgotten. Like we're overlooked. Um, maybe you feel like Life has passed you by. Your opportunities and your dreams are behind you. Your best days are behind you. You can feel forgotten. But the scripture has something to say about that. In Psalm 105, it says this, that God remembers his covenant forever. The promises that we already sang about this morning, his promises are yes and amen. In Genesis 8, it says that God remembered Noah in the midst of the flood. In the Old Testament, we see that God remembered the childless, uh, the childless woman, uh, Sarah, Rachel, and Hannah. He remembered them, and he blessed their wombs. In Exodus 2, we see that God heard the groaning of his people in their pain, and he remembered his covenant. And then Isaiah 49, I want to read this to you. This is one of the most beautiful pictures of how God remembers us. It says, yet Jerusalem says, here they are in exile, feeling um, torn apart from God. The people of God are saying, the Lord has deserted us. The Lord has forgotten us. And I just want to say that this idea that the Lord has forgotten us is one of the lies that the enemy would love to press in on your soul. That the enemy would like to whisper to your heart. Say, the Lord has forgotten you. He, yes, there were days in the past where he remembered you, but now he's on to other things. The Lord has forgotten you. And look how God responds, the sovereign one. He just, I love this, right to the point, this exclamatory statement, never. Can you hear God? As his people are saying, you've forgotten us. Can you hear God just saying, never, never. Can a mother forget her nursing child? 
Can she feel no love for the child she has born? But even if that were possible, I would not forget you. And look at this promise. See, I've written your name on the palms of my hands. How did Jesus write our names on the palms of his hands? Our names are written as a pierced nail, a hole right through his wrists. Your name written upon the palm of his hands, and he remembers you. Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, says this. He says, because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that's what Hebrews 13.8 says, here's what we can believe. That the same Christ who wept at the tomb of Lazarus weeps with us in our lonely despair. The same one who reached out and touched lepers put his arm around you today if you felt misunderstood and sidelined. The Jesus who reached out and cleansed messy sinners reaches into our souls and answers our half-hearted plea for mercy with the mighty, invincible cleaning of one who cannot bear to do otherwise. Jesus Christ cannot bear to forget you. So he remembers you. And even in our pain, we must remember the one who remembers us. It sustains us through the valley. It sustains us through the darkness. It sustains us through the struggles. And so, God, we pray this morning that in our pain, and all of us in this room would say there are different sorts of pain. And Jesus said, in this world, you will face trials and tribulation. There will be suffering. There will be pain. We are not strangers to these things. We are not surprised by these things. We are not destroyed by these things. And we are not defined by these things. Because, Jesus, you speak a better word over us. And so this morning, I pray for my friends that are in pain and experiencing pain this morning, physical pain, emotional pain, mental pain, social pain, psychological pain, relational pain, financial pain, spiritual pain. God, I pray that you would be their healer, that you would be their faithful shepherd, leading them through the valleys, the mountains, the pastures, the waters. Your nearness is our good, and we thank you for it. In our pain, help us to see others. In our pain, help us to use our gifts, not sit on them, not waste them. You'll ask us someday, what did you do with the gifts that I gave you? Help us to be faithful. And in our pain, most importantly, help us to remember the one who remembers us. God, that you would fill your mind with us. <laughs> who is man, the psalmist said, that, who is man that God would be mindful of him? You fill your mind, God, with thoughts of your people. Such peace is found in that truth. Such rest, such confidence.